A quick note before we begin. This episode contains subject matter that may not be suitable for younger listeners. Please use discretion. Lori Smith graduated from Indian River High School in 1987 as an honor student, a class officer, a three-sport athlete, and a gifted musician. That year, she was voted by her classmates as best all around. Her roots in the Indian River School District run deep. Not only is she a district graduate, but she's also a district parent, and her father, Gerald McCabe, was a math teacher and guidance counselor in the district for 32 years. Nowadays, Lori is a local business owner residing in Ocean View. Just as she did in high school, she exudes positivity and always seems to have a smile on her face. But Lori also has a story to tell. It's a story from one of the darkest days in American history. You see, Lori was living and working in Lower Manhattan, not far from the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center, on September 11, 2001, when a series of coordinated terrorist attacks resulted in the deaths of almost 3,000 people in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania. On a Tuesday morning that began like any other, Lori suddenly found herself making a frantic escape from Lower Manhattan, enlisting the help of numerous strangers along the way. The events of that day would alter her life forever, but they also include numerous examples of human kindness and of people helping their fellow man in the most dire of circumstances. Lori has been kind enough to tell us her story, which you'll hear in a moment. I'm Dave Maul, and this is the IRSD Spotlight. After graduating from Indian River High School in 1987, Lori Smith attended Mary Washington College, where she earned a degree in business. She went on to obtain her MBA from Virginia Tech University and eventually landed a job in information technology with Price Waterhouse. In September 2001, she and her husband Sandy were living in Atlanta, but commuting to New York each week for work. They lived in a corporate apartment in Battery Park City about a block and a half south of the World Trade Center. The office where Lori worked was located only two blocks east of the Twin Towers, making it possible for her to walk to work on most days. September 11, 2001 began like any other Tuesday. The temperature in Central Park that morning was a pleasant 68 degrees and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. It promised to be a brilliant late summer day. However, what Lori and most of the world didn't know was that terrorists had hijacked four commercial airliners early that morning and were about to pull off the most brazen attack the world had ever seen. Lori's husband Sandy had left early that morning for his job in New Jersey, and Lori was in her apartment preparing to leave for work when the first airliner crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46 a.m. I was just in my apartment getting ready to go to work. When the first plane hit, 8.46, I believe, and um, it, it sounded like this loud boom, and my TV went off, so I couldn't really know what was going on, except I noticed out my window there was trickling down like a ticker tape parade. And um, so I looked up, and I could see the fire in the World Trade Center at the top. 
Lori knew something serious had happened, but didn't realize just how serious the situation was. I didn't know what it was, but I went downstairs quickly um, to talk to the bellman down there, and they um, said that it was an accident. They thought they had heard that it was a smaller plane that had flown into the building by accident. But she was about to find out that it was no accident, and things were about to get much worse. Even though I thought it was an accident, it was still pretty scary. Um, you know, the, the building was on fire, the Trade Center. So I was going to walk to work to be with my other co-workers the longer way around. And um, so I got my, gathered my things together and started down. And as I was walking out my apartment building, all of a sudden everyone started running. And we didn't really know what we were running from, at least I didn't. Um, I actually remember grabbing the hand of somebody that was in my apartment building and you could hear this gradual like crescendo coming toward you and um, what it was actually was that second plane that was flying over and um, it was just this loud screeching noise we were running like you see in the movies in the war movies we were kind of hunched over you know trying to take cover and um, we ended up running across the street into a dry cleaners we were just a block and a half south of the um, before the plane hit the building. The sound she heard was the second hijacked airliner striking the South Tower at 9.03 a.m. When we got into that dry cleaners and we were all sort of sitting on the floor stunned, I just remember seeing all the faces of everyone, and that is when we realized it was terrorism mm -hmm. when that second plane had hit. Yeah, it, it was very scary. We didn't, we couldn't get a hold of anyone because the phones weren't working. We tried the landlines, cell phones weren't working, and we just all were, were taking this in together. Um, there was a young girl that I sat on the floor next to, and she didn't speak much English, um, but we were able to communicate a little. She told me her name was Kiono, and that she had been in the World Trade Center on um, when the first plane hit and she had left she was working in the um, one of the stores at the bottom so she left and didn't go back and we were just sitting there on the floor kind of rubbing each other's back to comfort each other um, not really knowing what to do next or what was going to happen next I remember there was another lady in there who was supposed to be up in the World Trade Center um, on one of the floors and she was late for work that day and she just kept saying to herself, I'm supposed to be there, I'm supposed to be there. And I know she was thinking about her coworkers that were there. At that point, I also, um, I remember a significant thing that happened to me. I looked up and I saw this picture. It was a picture of Jesus that I had seen in my church um, that had been there um, since I was a little girl, a baby actually, in, in my church. And I just remember I didn't want to move. Like, I just wanted to stay right there. And um, so we were all there, uh, I would say maybe for 15 minutes. And then the police came and told us we had to leave the dry cleaners. And um, they escorted us out onto like the bike path. And for some reason, the girl that I was with, Kiono, she was going to go back and try to get to her apartment and ask me if I wanted to come with her. Um, but I said no. Um, and I just kind of followed where the police were directing us and went out on the bike path, which was right along the Hudson River. Um, we weren't moving at that point. We were just all told to go get it on the bike path, um, which was just another you know, block mm -hmm. away. Um, 
and it was right along the water. Um, I can remember looking over and seeing New Jersey and just wanting to to be able to get there so badly because which is where your husband yeah, was correct? that was where my husband was I um, I was able to get one call to him um, I believe it was on the landline there and um, I was able to tell him that I was in that dry cleaners and I was okay and that I would call him the next time I had a chance so he knew I was there in that area but then I wasn't able to call him for like another four hours Eventually, Lori and the others began to move north along the bike path in an attempt to get away from the burning skyscrapers. She took comfort in the company of others as she realized the magnitude of what was happening. I really wanted to connect with somebody, so I saw a um, husband and wife sitting there with their daughter on a bench. So I went over to them and asked if I could stay with them. And um, I just remember uh, the man was very comforting, and I felt like he was really taking me under his wing. and and um, his wife was also very comforting. Um, the little girl kind of it lightened the mood a little that she was there. And also I remember looking at the water and something about the water, maybe it's because of where I grew up here next to the ocean, but it just brought things back to reality for me a little. I just remember that being a very calming um, thing at this point because you just really felt like reality was kind of ripped at the seams, you know? It's like we didn't know what was going to happen next. I think that was one of the scariest parts for me. Um, and you felt like maybe World War III was going to start because um, we did hear at that point that the Pentagon had been hit at, when we were there on the bike path. That was, like, yeah. unreal to me. <laughs> so I was very thankful for um, being able to stay with that family and we um, started walking up the bike path because eventually they, they didn't want us to go south, which is the way I wanted to go because that was down by Battery Park and away from the buildings. But all the smoke was blowing that direction. And um, so they didn't want us to walk where that thick smoke and all was going. So we had to go um, north, which really took us right by this marina that was just a block west of the, the World Trade Center buildings. The plan was that I was going to stay with the family and they were going to take me to New Jersey with them to their family. And we were calm, people were, were calmly walking, even though everybody was scared. And a lot of people, you know, were, were not able to get in touch with their relatives. But I was, I was holding hands with the lady, and the man had his younger daughter on his shoulders as we were all walking. And we had just rounded the corner where the boat harbor is right just directly west of the Trade Center. And the next couple moments are, um, I don't remember. I, I was holding hands with her, and the last thing I remember is she asked her husband um, to hurry up. And that's the last thing I remember of that family. Um, I don't remember like letting go of her hand or seeing them run off. The next thing I remember, there was this like tidal wave is the only way I can explain it, like a tidal wave of black smoke coming um, over the top of the buildings. There was no escape. It was, it was coming towards you. And I can even remember seeing like figures um, of people there. And then all of a sudden they were covered, you know, by the smoke. That tidal wave of black smoke was caused by the collapse of the South Tower at 9.59 a.m. So um, the first building fell. I didn't realize the building fell. I just remember um, a loud noise, and honestly, I, my memory just blanked out for a minute. I think I thought a bomb went off because 
I had some nightmares about that later. Whatever happened, I, I didn't realize the building had fallen at that point, um, but I knew I had to get away from that smoke. So I ran. It felt like you're a wild animal. You know, <laughs> you were trying to find a place to hide, but there was there was nothing there to like get under or um, go into. So the water was right there at the harbor. So I ran, got down on the ground, and um, covered my face up with my shirt. For whatever reason, I didn't jump in the water, but I got down and covered my head up. And I remember thinking that that was all the air that I was going to get because I felt like, you know, there was no air to breathe if I lifted my head up or anything. And I really was um, kind of in a state of shock, I guess. I, I wasn't really trying to get up and run or I, I remember I had like a coating in my mouth um, that I was trying to spit out just from that short time that I, you know, didn't have my face covered. And um, so I was trying to spit that out of my mouth and um, keep my shirt up over my face so that I would have air to breathe. At that point, another, you know, significant thing happened to me because I felt like I was on autopilot. Like, like I said, I wasn't trying to get up. And I just felt like um, this peacefulness came over me. And it was a feeling like I was gonna, everything was gonna be okay. I, I remember also thinking that if I couldn't breathe, I was gonna roll into the water and that was my escape. But, but really I just felt this sense of calm and peace. And afterward, looking back on that, I really feel like that my faith that I had and that foundation that I had in my church, I feel like that really pre- had prepared me like nothing else could because you were helpless and you know I guess I felt like I wasn't going to be able I was going to die possibly mm-hmm. and and I just really felt like I was wrapped with this um, peacefulness even though it was this totally scary moment. <laughs> but as would happen many times on this day, Lori would rely on the kindness of a total stranger to make her escape. Thankfully, a young man was walking by. He had been working across the street, and he, instead of like running for help, he was looking to see who he could help himself. So he came and got me up off the ground. Um, he tried to put me on his back because I wasn't, um, I guess, able to walk right away. I was just still kind of stunned. And eventually, I, after he tried to put me on his back, I motioned that I was okay to walk. So we started walking um, through this cloud. I remember you couldn't see very far in front of you um, to see where to go. But he, um, he then took off his shirt and gave me his shirt to breathe through because he was really, you know, helping me and, and working his way through the cloud for us to get to safety. And we did finally get out of the initial or that um, area where the thick dust was and um, when we did, we stopped and we got a drink of water and we ex- he told me his name was Pete. And um, we, w- we were there trying to just catch our breath and I still had his shirt with me. Um, but right then is when the second building fell. And as the building fell, everyone scattered again. And did you know that it had the second one had come down at this point or was it just like another wave of debris or did you know that that's what had happened? Yeah, that time I turned around and looked because everybody in the crowd was looking and I could see the building fall at that point. So I knew the building was falling at that point. And I remember Pete saying to run. So we, I ran, but I couldn't stay up with him. We, we got separated in the crowd. 
And I looked and there was another person in front of me, um, a young man on a bike. And I went over to him and asked him if I could go with him. And everything was just so fast. I remember he just gave me his backpack and I got on his bike and he jumped on the front standing up pedaling and we started pedaling right up West Side Highway. But I didn't see Pete anymore that day, but I spent the rest of the time with John, who was the guy I met on the bike. After the collapse of the North Tower at 1028 a.m., Lori would finally escape the smoke, debris, and mayhem in Lower Manhattan on the back of a bicycle. So any other time, you would not do this. We were riding right up West Side Highway, and fire trucks are coming toward us. At that point, I wanted to really get a call to my family and let them know I was okay. I kept thinking about my parents, um, especially my father, you know, and, and also my husband. Um, you know, I, he was in contact with my parents asking, have you heard from Lori? Have you learned? And they hadn't heard from me. But I was on the bike with John, and, like, we would stop occasionally at a parking garage or something and try to get a phone call out, but you couldn't get any calls out. Um, I know a lot of the antennas and things were on top of the World Trade Center. At one point, we were even in, in an underground um, parking area, and these cars pulled up and out jumped um, these men, and they went through the vests on that said FBI and took off. And and there were just things like that where you didn't know what was happening, and you know we were like, well, we, we better get out of here. So we got back on the bike and went um, further up. I think it was about six or seven miles he pedaled me on his bike to his apartment. Um, which was up on the east side, about 86th Street. And we um, went right through Central Park. The funny part about that is um, that it was very beautiful and clear, and you would have never known what had just happened in lower Manhattan. So we, we crossed through Central Park, got to his apartment, and when we did, that's where we were able to turn on the TV and see what was going on. We heard, you know, that they had, there were no airplanes flying. Um, and essentially their New York was on lockdown. Um, so there was no way to even leave if I wanted, wanted to at that point, um, because no ferries were running. Um, you know, you just, the bridges were closed and it really did give you a feeling of like being trapped, but You know, I felt safe that I was in this apartment. I was really thankful that he opened up his doors to me to come and take. I was a stranger, so he took me in. And then later on, about, like I said, about four hours later, I was able to get a call to my family. I think my dad is the first one I got a hold of. And he was just so relieved, you know, to get to hear my voice and um, to know that I was, you know, being taken care of by somebody and those two people, Pete and John, really um, helped me escape from that dark cloud there. But Lori still had to get off the island of Manhattan, which would be no easy task. She started the process by sharing a cab with two strangers. Or I decided I was going to go over and see if there was a train or ferry or something I could get across to Sandy. Because Sandy um, was still in New Jersey, and I had talked to him, and he was just like, as soon as I can get to you, I'm going to come and, you know, bring you home and, and um, just hold on, you know, um, you know, I'm going to get there as soon as I can. Uh, so I decided maybe I would go and try to get over to New Jersey. 
but there were no taxis or anything on the road. Just it was unusual because in New York City, you see all kinds of cars and things on the road. I saw in the distance there was a car with with two men jumping inside, and um, I ran over quickly because I didn't know if I'd find another one, so I jumped in with them. They told me what, what their experience was. One of the men had been in the World Trade Center, and he was um, about on the 33rd floor, I believe, and he was an older man and um, had walked down the stairs to get out after um, the first plane had hit. So he had gone to his friends, who was up near the apartment I was staying in, and um, his friend and he were trying to you know, get to their homes in New Jersey as well. So um, we were in the car. We went to the train station first, and we just rem- I remember feeling um, a little uneasy there because there were so many people, and it was um, underground, and all the trains were delayed anyway. So then we decided we would um, try to get a ferry. We had heard that the ferries had started running. And so um, we went, and um, we did. We were able to get on a ferry, um, and it, it was very somber, I remember, because it took you right down kind of near the World Trade Center, and nobody was talking. Everybody was just taking it all in. Um, you could see the flames still rising in the smoke, and um, it was just a very quiet, somber ride. And as we got over to New, um, New Jersey, we were right near Hoboken. Um, I remember the ferry stopped before we got all the way there. And like I said, I was going to jump in and, <laughs> and swim if I had to, to get there. But um, eventually we did go ahead and dock. And before we could leave, um, when we came off the boats, we had to go line up. And these um, people in hazardous material suits came out. And we all had to individually be, like, hosed off and sprayed. So we all got hosed down. And then, um, luckily, the, the men had a cell phone with them. And we were able to get in touch with Sandy, my husband. He, he wasn't able to get to us because 95 was closed. Um, all the streets surrounding Hoboken were closed. Um, but we were able to take a subway train for a little while, and, and then when we stopped, we were able to find a car to take us, and we eventually got to Metro Park, New Jersey, um, and that's where my husband met us up that night. So I think it was around 7 p.m. that night we finally got to um, Sandy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you came directly here, correct, right after that? Yeah. Well, we um, took the two men home in New Jersey, that was Alan and Craig, um, and we took them home, and then we drove back to Bethany Beach, Delaware. Um, my parents had the Blue Surf Hotel there, and so we, um, you know, we arrived, and of course had lots of hugs, and you know, just being very glad to see your loved ones. You didn't really think about anything you left behind, in, you know, in our apartment. But yeah, you didn't care about anything else except that you had the chance to hug and you know see your loved ones again that was uh, I remember something I took with me carried on to today and I remember the next morning waking up to this beautiful sunrise Sandy and I um, were like what you know how how did this happen what did we just come from and it was just like a dream had happened when we woke up that morning I was um, given a phone call from the office 
from my manager and my manager at Price Waterhouse was looking for me. She had gotten the number of my, um, my parents there and I was on their list of people that had been unaccounted for. And so um, I talked to her and told her I was okay and um, what had happened. Um, but it, it sank in because we did lose five employees that were on the plane that day, on the different planes. And I just remember it, you know, being like really hitting me that they they were just like I would. You know, they were getting ready to go to work that day. And um, I remember one of the um, younger um, people that did die on the plane. She was getting ready to go take a training course and was getting on the plane that morning to go, you know, just start her career. And yeah, so that's when it really hit home. We we were fortunate that we were able to get out that day and, you know, get to safety, but so many people weren't. And yeah, it just, it, that really is when it became real. Lori and Sandy also left everything behind when they fled New York City on 9-11. And luckily, my company was really, they were really good. They didn't tell us we had to come back right away. And so I was able to stay in Ocean View. Um, and that, that gave me a sense of security and comfort, you know, that I was home with my family and friends and the church that I was um, going to. I didn't want to go back. I was really um, nervous and anxious to go back. But Sandy um, thought he was able to. And so after a couple weeks of being at home and, and um, you know, like I said, we didn't care what was in our apartment. That didn't really matter to us. But he did go back to that apartment um, when he went back to work. And he was in the red zone. So in order to get to our apartment, he had to be escorted by the National Guard. Nothing had happened to our apartment except all the windows were broken and they, things had been covered with dust, but they had cleaned them out. And um, Sandy went back um, a couple weeks after the events happened on 9-11 and he uh, went to his job. I stayed and worked with his aunt in Wilmington. Um, luckily my project was, um, they were merging with J.P. Morgan. And so I was able to work in Wilmington and live with Sandy's aunt and still work remotely on my project at Chase. Lori was eventually able to track down Pete, who had assisted her after the collapse of the first tower, and who offered her his shirt to help her breathe. It took two years and some old-fashioned detective work. So it took a couple years, actually, but when I came home, my mom took that shirt that I still had, that Pete had given me to breathe through. Um, in his shirt, there was a dry cleaning tag, and it had his name, Pete Sellers, and it had the dry cleaners, which was 2001 cleaners. I tried it. Back then, we didn't have the search engines and things we have today, but I called all the different people I knew that I could call by that name, and I, I just couldn't find him. Time went by, you know, I'd stop trying, and then I'd try again um, a couple months later. Well, after two years, I plugged in into the search on, on the computer. I plugged that 2001 cleaners in. And this time, um, a cleaners came up in North Carolina. I had been focused on one that was up in New York, thinking that was where it was from. The North Carolina cleaners, when I called them, they said, oh yeah, we know Pete Sellers. 
And I was like, you do? Can I have his number? And I told them the experience I had had. And they told me um, he was working at a bank there in Charlotte. And so I called the bank. Well, he wasn't working there anymore, but they told me he probably was at another bank. So I called another bank, and they put me on hold. And the next thing I know, there's a man's voice on the phone and saying, I didn't expect to get this call today. So we talked and um, just kind of reintroduced ourselves, and um, we decided we'd keep in, in touch, which we have. He was actually um, work, he was working in New York City. I think he was like I was, where he'd travel from North Carolina up to New York City. And you're still in touch with him to this day? We talk every year on 9-11. The interesting part is that I asked him if I could keep his shirt um, <laughs> just because it meant so much to me, and that was such a connection. I, so he, of course, said yes, so I still have his shirt. And when I talk to uh, different groups now, I show them his shirt, mm -hmm. and I think it helps them. You know, it, it makes it real to them. Mm -hmm. The events of 9-11 had a profound impact on Lori and Sandy's life and served as the impetus for returning to their roots in Sussex County. Well, after 9-11, Sandy and I were, were, we were living in Atlanta. We decided we didn't want to wait to come home and, and live near our family um, and start our own family. So that happened in September, and by November, we had bought our house here. <laughs> so things happened quickly. It just really made us focus on family and not wanting to wait to be with them. So we moved back here um, in January is when we moved back here of 2002. Not soon long after that, we, we had our two children who um, also went to Indian River High School and uh, being back home here in um, Sussex County where we grew up, I just think it's a wonderful place to be. And I know it, it really gave me that sense of security I needed. So we were glad we moved home. Lori and Sandy, who is also an Indian River High School graduate from the class of 1985, would relocate to Bethany Beach and have two children. Their youngest, Heather, is currently an 11th grader at Indian River High School and, like her mother, is a three-sport athlete. Their son, Destin, is an Indian River High School graduate who is studying mechanical engineering at Georgia Tech University. Even though they weren't alive when the attacks occurred, the events of 9-11 have impacted them nonetheless. I think both of them, when they look back at the stories that I tell from 9-11 and they hear me talking to the people that I have kept in touch with, I've also kept in touch with Craig and Alan, the two men that... Um, brought me in, in the taxi together. I um, I did keep in touch with John, but we've I haven't kept in touch with him in the last few years. But um, my kids really look to them as heroes. I think it lets them realize how the good that came out that day. You know, it's a lot of scary things that went on, especially for a child to to understand. But I like to focus on the good things that happen and the way that people help them that day. And, and I think that gives them hope. And that's how Lori has chosen to process what happened to her on 9-11, by focusing on the good in people and the human connections she made during such traumatic and tragic circumstances. Um, I, de I definitely don't want to forget, you know, the, the people that weren't as fortunate as I was. You know, a lot of people still carry with them the loss of their loved ones and... Um, things that happened to them 
um, that just can never be replaced. But for me, I like to um, think about the goodness that people shared that day. You know, like when I look back at just what I went through, my experience, the young girl that I met on the floor in the dry cleaners, and we didn't even really speak the same language, but the feeling of um, patting each other on the back when we that initial fear of terrorism had set in, that was really special. And then the, the people that I met on the bike path, the man and the woman and their younger girl that were going to just take me under their wing that day and, and um, take me with them to their family's house. Then there was Pete, of course. I could never forget because when I look back at pictures now, the area that we that I was in when the first building fell and I was just lying there on the ground. If you look in pictures now, when that second building fell, there was debris and glass and beams and everything all over that area. So if he hadn't gotten me up off the ground and um, like if he had just run off to safety, which you know I could, could have easily been his first instinct, if he hadn't looked to see who else he could help and gotten me up off the ground, I could very well have died or been seriously hurt. And then John, um, the young man on the bike, you know, he um, he just graciously like let me on his bike and pedaled me all the way up to his apartment, and I was just a stranger to him. And um, and then also I I will always remember that peace that was over me that. You know, I didn't have to be afraid, even though I didn't know what was going to happen next and didn't think I was going to be able to breathe. And um, like I said, I just it always gives me that trust that God is always going to be with me. I think that that goodness and that um, love that people showed that day when they were helping each other, I think, you know, that is is never going to be overshadowed by all the darkness and that fear that was going on. You know, nothing can stop that love from coming out of each other. In the end, the loss of life was staggering. The attacks on 9-11 claimed the lives of 2,996 people, making it the deadliest terrorist attack in world history. More than 2,600 people alone died at the World Trade Center and its surrounding area. That total included 343 New York City firefighters. But as Lori's story shows, amidst this unspeakable tragedy came countless instances of heroism from first responders and from regular people who risked their own lives to help others. Lori has told her story in presentations to more than 40 local community groups, including schools in the Indian River School District. She does this so people remember not only the victims of that tragic day, but also the examples of heroism and goodness among human beings. Today, Lori and her husband own three local toy stores, Tide Pool Toys in Bethany Beach and Fenwick Island, and Kids Catch in Lewis. Lori first returned to Lower Manhattan in January of 2002, four months after the attacks, and was amazed by the devastation at Ground Zero. Since then, she has returned to New York City almost every year to attend toy shows. She has also taken her children to the 9-11 Memorial, which is located in the footprint of where the Twin Towers once stood. We'll let her tell you the most important thing she took away from the events of 9-11. The biggest thing that I think I took from that day is that even in the darkest times that we have, 
whether we're feeling lonely or afraid, helpless, that that goodness and love that I experienced that day, it, it can never be um, overshadowed by those dark moments and that I feel like we have that love in us um, that we've been given and that we're here to share that love with others. I want to offer Lori our sincere and heartfelt thanks for taking the time to share her story and for keeping the memory of 9-11 and its victims alive. In researching this episode, I relied heavily on Karen McGill's September 10, 2020 Coastal Point newspaper article about Lori and her experience at Ground Zero on 9-11. IRSD Spotlight is produced by the Indian River School District. Episodes can be accessed through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and several other podcast platforms and mobile apps. Episodes and bonus content can also be accessed by visiting irsd.net and going to the podcast link under the Discover IRSD tab. To search for episodes on Facebook, use the hashtags IRSD Podcast and IRSD Spotlight. Your hand in mine, courtesy of Explosions in the Sky and Temporary Residence 2003. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with more great news and information from the Indian River School District.